0: All right. Good morning, everybody. Hey. Yeah, my name's Todd. Nice to see you guys this morning. If you're new, uh, I think it's important to point out that we have had a saxophone before Kanye did. If you don't know what that means, talk to a young person sitting next to you. My name's Todd. I'm one of the uh, elders for free here at the church. I work at Shelter Insurance. I'm one of your pastors not on staff. I'm like the bonus 30% on that package that you get, you know. Like 30% more macaroni. It's like, well, I was just going to buy the box whenever. I guess I just get this extra for free. So that's me. Um, So today we are in Genesis 35 and 36, if you want to find your way there. And as you find your way there, I want to get you caught up on a little bit of context. God's plan from the beginning has been to fill the world with people who are filled with him. So he's got two things in vision from the very beginning, to cover the surface of the earth with people who are themselves filled entirely with the image of God. So he wants to fill the world, fill the people who are filling the world. We see this in Genesis 1.28. I have it up on a slide for you. You can just keep your Bible in Genesis 35 and 36. Genesis 1.28, God says it this way. This is the mission he gave to mankind from the beginning. God blessed them, the man and woman, and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So God wants to fill the earth, and he wants it to be a fruitful endeavor. So you can measure it by square inches, like how many acres this thing is going to cover, and you can, marry, you can measure it by fruitfulness or the yield that's coming out of it. And so, in other words, like God wants to cover the surface of the earth the way that you want to cover your cinnamon roll with icing. right? You imagine a nice, fresh-out-of-the-oven, warm cinnamon roll. How much icing do you want on top of that? All of the icing, right? And you, want, you just like lavishly just just put it on there so it's covered. It's even dripping down the sides. Like it's just covering the whole thing, just lavishly lather it on there. That's the way God wants to cover the earth with people because God loves people. It's like icing to a cinnamon roll. God loves people. He wants them to cover the earth, just like that same thing. But he also wants the people themselves to kind of be like cheesecake. You know cheesecake? Like a crumb of cheesecake is like your daily caloric value. (laughs) You know, it's like it's dense, right? Like every, it's rich, it's just dense. And he wants us as individuals to be like that cheesecake, just rich, dense, packed full of nutrients and calories and energy. That's what he wants you to be. He wants you to be full. He wants you to be filled. And so his idea is to fill you and to fill the earth. So we add to the church in numbers, just like in Acts, we see the church grew in numbers. It's more and more people are coming to know Jesus, but then those people are themselves growing deeper and deeper. So it's being measured in width and in depth. And that is God's vision from the beginning. And so we're going to see today that God is interested in growing the quantity of people who call on him, but also the quality of those individuals. And so today, particularly, we're going to see that the quality is in view as we follow Jacob in his journey. We've been following, this part of Genesis is really focused around Jacob. And so we're going to see that the quality of his worship is really going to be in focus today as he's been growing him in quantity. So verse 1 of chapter 35, God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So God gives Jacob a command. Arise, go to Bethel. You guys ever get distracted? You ever find, and when you do, you ever find yourself in front of the fridge? Being like, (laughs) what was I doing again? (laughs) And you have no idea what you're doing, but for some reason, it's always the fridge. You're just staring in the fridge. You're like, what was I doing anyways? Oh, right, I was going to get my passport. (laughs) But you're, but you're always in the fridge, like by default. If you don't know what you're doing, you just end up at the fridge for some reason. Jacob can relate. This is not the first time God has called him to go to Bethel. This has been something that God's wanted him to do for a while now, and it's come up multiple times. I have up on a couple of slides for you. Genesis 28, verses 20 through 22. This is back when Jacob was on his way out of his homeland. He met God and he said god made a, or jacob made a vow saying if god will be with me and will keep me in this way that i go i will and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that i come again to my father's house in peace the plan has always been to come back then the lord shall be my god and this stone which i have set up here for a pillar shall be god's house so even when he was on his way out he had this he had this experience with god and the plan was always I need to get back here. I need to get back here. I'm going here. I need to go away from my home because my brother wants to murder me. But my plan is, the plan is to come back. It's not to stay away. And then we see Genesis 31, 13. We see this again. So later in the story, God talks to him and says, I am the God of Bethel, that place, the place where he met God the first time, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me, the one we just read about, the vow that you come back. Now arise, go out from this land and return. Well, that was four chapters ago, and he's still not back in Bethel yet. He keeps getting distracted. He's got a lot going on in his world, and so he keeps getting distracted. He keeps ending up at the fridge being like, what was I doing again? And God's like, Bethel, Bethel, Bethel. <laughs> like, how many times do I have to say this, Jacob? So Bethel. So he, verse 1, we see he's, he's again coming back to him. Bethel. Remember where he made the vow, Bethel. So he wants to go there. So Jacob calls a family meeting. Okay, it's time to go to Bethel. Verse 2. So Jacob said to his household and to all who are with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So God is still with him, but God wants him back at Bethel. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears, Jacob hid them underneath the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. So although Jacob knows he's supposed to go back to Bethel, what do we see that he's accumulated along the way? What does he even have here? What's The first thing, God says go to Bethel, and he's like, if we're going to go to Bethel, we should probably get rid of the foreign gods we have with us. Why does he have foreign gods with him in the first place? Why is he even allowing the existence of some of these things in his life? These are things that he knows about. Because the second God says go go to Bethel. God doesn't also say, and get rid of the foreign gods. The second he knows he's supposed to go there, he knows immediately what that thing is. Is that you this morning? Like If if God were to show up and say, I want you to do this thing for me, you immediately would know the thing that has to go. If I'm going to go where God is, I can't go there with this stuff in my life. And in the meantime, you've kind of been tolerating it, or you've been accumulating this junk that's become part of your traveling thing. It just goes with you wherever you go. It's a habit you developed. It's a relationship that you're in that you shouldn't be. It's a a thing that's happened along the way. It's something you've picked up. And it's become part of the way that you deal with things. And if God were to show up this morning, hypothetically, for example, and to tell you to follow him, you immediately, without me even having to read your mail, know exactly what that thing is. If I were to get serious about following God today, I would have to get serious about this thing. And Jacob knows that. The second that God calls him to go again, he's like, those foreign gods got to go. He knows the thing. God doesn't even have to say it by name. He knows it intuitively. He knows the thing that he's supposed to get rid of. God speaks, and he knows immediately what he needs to do. And look at, look at the way, the, the pattern that Jacob now puts into place. It says in verse 2, it says, He put away the foreign gods, purify yourself, and then change your garments. And that's exactly what we see in the New Testament. That is, that is the pattern of how you deal with sin when you're on your way to God. I have it up there on the screen for you. Ephesians 4 Verses 22 and 24, it's the exact same language that Paul uses for how we go about following God when we get serious about following him. Look what Paul says. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The exact same thing that Jacob said to do. This has always been God's plan for sanctifying his people. Put off Put away the old. Renew yourself in the things of God and then put on new clothes. Put on new habits. It's not enough just to to, to put off the old, which is a good start. Put off the old. Put that off. But then renew yourself and then put on something new. Develop new godly habits. Don't just get as far away as you can from sin, but actually pursue righteousness. Do things that are in keeping with true righteousness and holiness. This has been God's pattern for people all the way back. We see it in Jacob and now we see it in Paul in Ephesians. So God is very concerned with not just quantity of growing his church in numbers, but the quality of those people who constitute his church. He wants them to be deep, rich, dense, filled with God. As much as he wants the earth covered in every square inch, he wants to cover you, every square inch of you, every square inch of your mind, of your affections, of your hands, your fingers. He wants to, he wants to own all of it. He wants to fill you up with himself and then send you out to make more disciples for his name. Verse 5 through 8, we continue the story. So Jacob has commanded his, his troop to renew themselves, to pursue God wholeheartedly. If we're going to do, go do this, we need to do it with the right way. As they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. And he and all the people who were with him, and there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel. Because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died. And she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alun bakuth Remember the first time he was on the way out of his house. He was scared. He was alone for the first time in his life. And he had a God experience in this place. He met God in a dream where God showed him the connection between heaven and earth was a ladder where the angels were ascending and descending And we saw, remember from that sermon, that that's Jesus was revealing himself. I am the connection between heaven and earth. And Jacob woke up from that dream. And remember what he said? How awesome is this place? This is the gateway to God. I should mark it. So he tips the rock over and pours pours some oil on it, you know, so he can find it later. (laughs) That's an important place. If this is a a port key to get to heaven, I probably should mark it because there's a lot of rocks out here. So he's like, how awesome is this place? He's on the way back now and he comes to this place where he met God. And now he names it El Bethel. But Bethel meant house of God. El Bethel means God of the house of God. Last time he was here, he was a new believer. He was young in his faith. He said, How awesome is this place? How awesome is this experience? How awesome is this song? It made me feel God. How awesome was that message I heard at that one retreat? How awesome was that experience? Now he's saying, How awesome is the God of the experience? How awesome is the God of this place? Not the place, but the God. The God that this place gets me to. Not just the place, the God. He's maturing in his faith. He's not just seeing his faith isn't wrapped up in the experience he had once. I heard that song and I felt the spirit move me. He doesn't rely on the experience. He relies on the spirit that moved him. Not the place that gets him to God, but the God behind the place. So he names it El Bethel because it's not about the place anymore. It's about the person that the place represents. It's the God behind it. He is growing in his depth and maturity of faith. He's not just relying on experiences and that one church camp and that one time I came forward and that one time I did that thing. It's the God that motivated me to do the thing in the first place. It's the God behind all the great things I have. The God behind everything is the thing I worship, not just the, the good marriage and the good kids, but the God who gave me the life, the God who sustains my kids, the God behind everything. The quality of his worship is growing He's going from a man who has met God to a man who walks with God. There's a difference between just having met God, which is a great experience, and it's right to mark that on the mile marker of your life, to write it in your journal. That's the day I met God. That's rightfully so. Put those mile markers down. But he's not just a guy who relies on the fact that he met God once. He's now a guy who walks with God daily. I didn't just meet him. I walk with him. I know him. And so now that Jacob finally gets that, he's growing God has other lessons for Jacob. It's not like school's out. It's like, Jacob, good, you graduated from God's school. You're done now. No, there's other lessons, but God was sitting on those because I can't get you to the 401 class until I get you through 101, Jacob. Okay, you get it now. It's about me behind the place, not just the place. Next lesson, verse nine. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him and God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel, and God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him. In the place where he had spoken with him, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it, so Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. God is concerned with where Jacob is going. That's what started this whole thing, get back to Bethel. But he is very concerned also with who Jacob is as he goes there not just the destination where he's trying to get him to, but the kind of person Jacob is as he gets there, the kind of growth interpersonally, the kind of person Jacob will be when he finally gets to where he's supposed to go. They're connected together, and we see that here. And we see, you saw uh, a couple weeks ago, Luke preached on when, when God wrestled with Jacob and, and gave him this name Israel, but you see, he's still been going by Jacob. God told him, you are Israel. You remember that? He wrestled with God, you remember that, I hope, <laughs> where God took him and like just, like, you know, put him out to the woodshed and taught him, you know, put his hip out of place. So he's been walking with a limp ever since then. But he's still been going by Jacob, even though God had called him Israel. Here he reinstitutes it again and says, you are Israel. You are not Jacob. You are Israel. You are a new thing. You are not just Jacob 2.0, like a better version of your former self. You are a new thing altogether. You're not just a, a, a Jacob who deceives less than he used to. You are a brand new thing. You're not defined by being less Jacob than you used to be. You are a whole different thing altogether. 2 Corinthians 5:17 Paul in the New Testament says it this way. I have it up on a slide for you. He says therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold the new has come. He's a new thing. He's not Jacob 2.0. He's not a better version of Jacob. He's not Jacob. If you remember the name means deceiver. That was his name. What's your name? Remember that from Luke's sermon? It was a powerful moment. What's your name? Jacob. I'm a deceiver. He's not just less deceitful. You see how that would be an improvement? But that's not his name. He's not less deceitful. He's a new thing altogether. He's not defined by his sin anymore. He's defined by his God. And God says, you know what the name Israel means? The one who wrestles with God. Not, so he's not defined by, I used to be a sinner, but now I'm less sinful and so some of you, that's what the approach you want to take. I am less sinful than I used to be. But that's not your identity. That's true. If you're in Christ, you don't sin as much as you used to. But that's not who you are. Who you are is defined by your proximity to God, not your distance from sin. And so Jacob is now Israel because he's the one who wrestles with God. Wherever I go, God is with me. And we're, we're mixing it up. Because wrestling is contact, And like, that's me and God. Like, it might be ugly sometimes and I might get my hip put out of place, but we're in contact. And that's me. That's my identity. I am defined by my proximity to God, not my distance from sin. And so some of us, we need to redefine ourselves the way that God tells us we're defined in Christ. We're a new thing. You're not just the guy who's a little less, you lie less than you used to. Or you're a little more sexually moral than you used to, a little less immoral. You're not defined by that continuum. Scrap that. If you're in Christ, it's a whole new game. You're defined by God and who who he says you are is who you are, not your proximity to sin. I have a quote up here by um, an old dead guy, Gerhard Ford. If anybody knows me, I love dead people. They're, They're really good at saying stuff. And then we write it down and then we say it. So this is something he said once. He said, the Christian life is not an exodus from vice to virtue, but rather from virtue to grace. Listen, the way that most of us think is that we think in terms of from vice to virtue. We think, I used to sin, now I sin less. And that's what the Christian life is. Becoming a Christian means I don't sin anymore. Or I sin a little less than I used to, and that's what makes me a Christian. That's a good like, progression to make, and I think the world would be better if people were, had a little more virtue and a little less vice. I think we'd all agree about that. Our neighbors would be better off. We'd like living in our neighborhoods if there was less vice in them. But that's not Christianity. Everybody should do that. Your neighbor should be a good neighbor because that's what neighbors should do, not because that's what a Christian is. A Christian makes the transition not just from vice to virtue, but from virtue to grace. I no longer rely on the fact that I don't lie anymore. I rely on Jesus. My confidence is not that I sin less than I used to. I'm glad that that's true, but that's not my confidence. That's like worshiping the place. That's like saying, how awesome is this, how awesome is this habit that I've developed of reading my Bible every morning? How awesome is it that I don't click on those websites anymore? That's awesome. Great first step. But, but, the, but the goal is not to leave you there. It's to grow you to the place where you're like, how awesome is the God who's so much better than that stuff I used to click on? How much better is the God who's better than the lies I used to tell? Because I can live in freedom and truth. I don't have to worry about hiding in the shadows, worrying about lies and being caught or trying to make people think stuff about me that's not even true and so they like me but I'm not even sure how I feel about it because if they knew who I really was, they wouldn't like me much and that's why I lie to them. How much better is the God of truth behind all that? How much better is the God of purity behind just being less sinful? And that's the depth he wants us to grow. He wants you to have a new identity if you are in Jesus. It's not about, I don't sin as much as I used to. It's about the God behind the thing that's worth more than the sin that you're giving up. He's worth more than that. And it's the transition from that thinking, which is truly Christian. To be truly Christian doesn't mean just not sinning. It means to worship Christ. And that's what we're here to do. And that's where we want to grow. Not just more people who call on his name, but those who call on his name to grow in how they do it more and more in their affections, in their thinking, in their calendar, in their wallet, in everything. All of Christ for all of life. God wants to grow our quality, not just our quantity, which also means we will have trials. Because trials are a way that he grows people. And he loves you too much to not let you grow. He loves you too much to leave the quality of your faith so puny as to not grow it. But the way that it grows is through hardship and trials. And we see that, verse 16, Jacob's story continues. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephra, Rachel went into labor. And she had a hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath. That is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over a tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. While Israel lived in the land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. So just because you're going the right direction doesn't mean everything's going to be rainbows and butterflies. He's like, what? God, I'm going where you wanted me to go. And the, right out of the gate, you're going to throw this like into the wrench? You're going to throw this wrench into the works like my wife dies in child labor? Come on, I'm doing what you want. How is this how you repay me for doing what you want? How hard of a trial. to and Rachel, his beloved wife, while in labor giving birth to a son, and she names him Ben-Oni, which means son of my suffering. And Jacob's like, no, don't put that on him. Don't, don't make that the name he grows up with, knowing you're the one who killed my wife. He changes his name. He's like, no, no, we're going gonna to name him Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. It's like, I don't know how this glorifies God, and I don't want to lose my wife, but, I'm, I, but it's got to be a God thing, and he's son of my right hand. God gave me this son, and the way that he was brought into this world is by the death of my wife, and I don't know what that means or why that's good, and I'm not even going to pretend like I think it's good. I'm not going to pretend like, oh, I'm glad she's dead, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to turn that frown upside down and be like, do the Christian for your face thing where everything's fine, everything's fine. Like you don't have to pretend that things are fine. It's okay for things not to be okay, but it's not okay to, to act like they're okay when they're not. And it's okay. God is okay with you being not okay with stuff and being hurt and going through trials. But one of the trials we often come in contact with when we start following Jesus is his own sovereignty gets in our way. God does stuff that we wouldn't do. And so one of the trials is just dealing with the fact that God is an independent free agent. He's the only free agent in the universe who can truly do whatever he wants, and all that is good. And some of that time means that life turns out a different way than we thought it was going to. And so for, for, for Jacob, the trial of dealing with God's sovereignty, being like, that's not how I would have mapped this story out, and trying to deal with that and still follow God, knowing that he's the author of the story. And certain plot twists are hard to explain but the trials are producing something. They're not meaningless. You're not going through these things for nothing. He's not just up there, some, some cosmic God who's just like flipping switches without thinking about what he's doing. Or, or he took his hand off the steering wheel for a second and Rachel died. We don't have a God like that. We have a God who knows what he's doing. And if that's the case, then that means we can hope even when things seem hopeless. Because he's behind it all. He's strategically writing the story in the way he wants to. And we also see not just the trial of dealing with the fact that God is God and we're not, but the trial that we're still surrounded by people who sin against us. And we don't control them either. They do stuff to us that we wouldn't have chosen for them to do to us. Look at what happens here with Reuben. He goes and like sleeps with Bilhah, who he has children with. It's like, like just, the, just the pain and the exasperation of like, what? Like, how is this happening? What? Why is this Just the struggle of people sinning against you and and you don't have an explanation for it. There's no good answer other than just the trial of having to deal with the fact that people are going to do things and that's what they're going to do. And you have to just live in a world where people are free to do stuff like that. Are you going to still trust God even though people don't? Even if people around you don't buy in, are you still going to continue to follow him even when that is the case? Look at James 1, 2 through 4 just to punctuate this point. We'll move on. James says it this way. Count it. All joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Rest assured, Christian, your testing is producing something. It's not meaningless. It's not nothing. It is doing something. It's doing something. It's producing something. And yes, it's hard to count it all joy. But if your goal is to be perfect, and complete, and to lack nothing, there's only one way to get there. If you want Christian depth and maturity, you have to embrace the fact that God is sovereign in you or not, and that people will sin against you whether you like it or not. And you have to grow in your faith and have your faith produce something like steadfastness, which means hang in there, guys. Hang in there. Hang in there. Steadfastness. So while quality has been a primary focus, there is also this quantitative element of God wanting to spread out numbers-wise. Look at verse 22, the second part of it. Now the sons of Jacob were 12. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padanaram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. So we see his company is growing, right? God said, from you, kings will come from you. Can I take a second for that, guys? Like, I, I just read that. I, I didn't even have this in my notes, but I just read that this morning, and I'm like, can you imagine if God told you kings are coming through your family? Like, what a... Honor that would be to be like I am the father of kings, like nations. Like the world is going to be impacted for God because of me, like downstream. And I may never see it, but just to know that, like, what an honor and a privilege, guys. I hope you hear that and it inspires your heart. Like, look at look at his, the size of his family, though. His grandpa Abraham came through this land, and his wife Sarah died. And you remember that whole passage, a whole chapter. of The Bible is devoted to him trying to buy a burial plot for his wife. And they had one son between the, between the two of them. They had one son, Isaac, the son of promise. That was the last time they were here. He buried Sarah. That one son, Isaac, grew up, got married. He had two sons, Jacob and Esau. That son has grown up and got married. Now he has 12 sons. Like you can see the multiplication. It, it started small with one and two, and now it's growing. And we see this thing is starting to take off, and you just start doing exponential math. Like the way that, you know, that exponential interest starts to work if it's in your favor and not on your debt side. You're like, that exponential math, it looks ugly when it's on the other side of the the equation when it's just like more debt is just gathering. But when it's working for you, you're like, oh man, I could see how we could take over nations. If if these 12 have 12, all of a sudden, like now we're playing with fire. Like we're going to, this thing's going to spread. We're going to grow. And God is committed to growing his people in quantity. And so he's not just growing Jacob's depth as the head of the household to pass on more depth downstream, but he's growing the number of people he has influence over. And I hope that's happening for you in your lives, that you're growing in influence and seeing people come to know Jesus who never did before, growing the numbers of all of us as he grows you in the quality of your faith. But God's people aren't the only people growing. And so I'm not going to read through Genesis 36, because it's like reading the Hebrew phone book, um, but you can do that if you want to. And it's a good exercise. I'm not telling you not to. Just, it's, uh, the best use of our time this morning is not doing that. But it's referencing the, all of chapter 36 is Esau's family. Because remember, there are two brothers, Jacob and Esau. Esau does not follow God. Esau rejected the promise of God. He got mad and tried to steal it back from his brother who stole it. It was a whole mess, if you remember that. There was a Wookiee costume involved. Go back and listen to old sermons if you want to hear that. But Esau is not following God. But, but he's got the same strategy. Let's grow. Let's grow this thing. And you see Genesis 36. Evil is taking off. Evil is also trying to cover the earth. The earth is not just sitting there like some static thing waiting to be conquered by Jesus-loving Christians. It has its own agenda. It's not just sitting there waiting to be taken over. It's trying to take over. It's pushing back. God from the beginning put enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And they are trying to impose their wills upon each other. And so that other side is pushing back. And you see Genesis 36 like dandelions. Esau's family is taking over. Like everywhere you look, there's dandelions everywhere. They're growing in in width. But you know how dandelions are stubbornly deep? They're, They're growing in depth too. They're getting used, they're growing their habits. They're getting better at evil. They're getting more entrenched in it as they go, as the family spreads out. So evil has its own agenda, but it's doing it the same way. There's only one way to do it, width and depth. And so you see that in Genesis 36. Esau's family is growing that way. So what's God's people supposed to do when you look at Esau's whole family of that lineage and then you roll it back, we're like, well, now 12 sons doesn't sound like a lot. It's 12 against all that. It's the 12 of us against chapter 36, all those names there. What's God's plan? Same as it was before. Fill the earth with people who are filled with his presence. That's always been the plan. It always will be the plan. That's the way we take over the world. That's the way that Christ reclaims every square inch of this world for himself is that we personally take it upon ourselves to grow in depth, and then we go out and make disciples, that make disciples. We see that in the first words of God from Genesis chapter 1. We see that in the last words of Jesus, Matthew 28. I have that up on the screen, and we'll close with this. So the very first words of God, Genesis chapter 1, the first page of your Bible. And now the last words of Jesus, Genesis 28. In fact, the last words of Matthew, verses 18 through 20. Look at how Jesus, the marching orders that he gave to these people... Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. There is not a single square inch of anything that is not mine. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Go tell them whose they are. Go tell them that they belong to Jesus. Go tell the world whose they are. Because they don't know. They weren't here. They weren't here on this hill. They didn't see what happened on a very specific cross, on a specific day in history where only a few people were around. You need to get the word out. They don't know what happened. They need to know. Go fill the earth, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Don't just like, baptize, immerse them in the triune God. Don't just go through a ceremony where you dunk them in water. Do that so that they identify with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Do that. But drown their whole life in things of God. Like, make sure that they're like, like, a, like, a, like a cinnamon roll is saturated with icing. Like, just s- saturate their life with everything of God. Just dip their life in things of God. So their calendar, their heart, their affections, who they love, who they don't love, what they like, what they don't like. Dip it all in the things of God. Teaching them to observe all. Notice how many times the word all just keeps coming up. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Don't leave anything out. Teach them everything and teach them how to do it. And behold, when you do this, I am with you always to the end of the age. You want to know that that comfort, that presence of I am with God and God is with me? Do this. He has promised, when you do this, I am with you. I promise, forever and ever, for every generation that would ever commit themselves to making disciples that make disciples, who would commit themselves to themselves baptizing their whole life in Jesus, not just a day where they did it in water in front of a crowd, but in their life, they're baptizing their mind and the things of Scripture, their heart in God's commands, and then teach other people to do the same thing. I am with you when you do that. You don't have to question it. You don't have to say, God, are you with me in this? Asked and answered, always, to the end of the age. I am with you. And as we transition to a period of communion to respond to the hearing of God's word, don't miss the fact that the the Jesus who gave these commands in Matthew 28 is a crucified man. He's a dead man talking to these people. Just three days before, he was dead in a grave, died on a cross for the sins of the whole world, and he is now alive. And after 40 days of living and walking among them, As showing them, hey, I've conquered sin, Satan, and death. He is standing now in front of them, telling them what to do. In light of what I have done, in light of me saying, it is finished on a cross, here's what you are to do. The one who says, it's all been given to me, gave up everything he had. He left everything he had and put it on a cross. The one who says, go fill the earth, left his home and came to ours. The one who says, be filled, emptied himself. The one who says, live for God, died for sinners. The one who says, die to yourself, rose from the grave. And the one who says, I'm with you always, sent his spirit to comfort us. So as the band comes up and we play worship music in response, as we, as we sing together, there's communion tables set up around the room. And if your confession is that he is your God and you want to grow in your own depth and maturity, and you want to, and you're one of those that he has claimed for himself, You are one of the numbers who now constitutes the church. You're one of the numbers that have been added to his family. And you want to grow in depth and then go add more people to the family of God. If that is you, this table is for you because you're confessing coming to this table that he died in my place for my sin. And now I will live for him and everything he did for me to tell the world that they need to know. And I will personally take it upon myself to grow. I will grow in my own maturity and depth as I try to spread with his name everywhere to anybody who will listen. And so come, come forward. Break off a piece of the bread which represents his body which was broken for you. Dip it in the cup which is his blood which was poured out for your sins. And then take it remembering that the one who commissions us to go and fill the earth and to fill ourselves, himself emptied himself to give us a world that's his and now offers himself to fill us. It's not just a go, you don't have just like a post-it note of a to-do list today. Go home and and and, and come here to the table and be filled by him and then go out and empty yourself and then come back next week and fill up and empty, fill up and empty. And as we do, we'll see numbers added to ours and we'll see our own hearts growing in depth and maturity. Heavenly Father, thank you for your desire to fill the world and to fill us. Thank you for the provision of your spirit who comforts us even now. You are with us right now. Your spirit convicts us of sin and it comforts us in forgiveness. It reminds us of how we failed and it reminds us of Jesus who died for our failures. May, may even today, may you add to our numbers. May, may someone in, this, in our numbers today hear this and embrace it and become a new believer to transfer a new identity to have walked in here. Somebody who would say, what's your name? Deceiver, sexually immoral, liar, scared, anxious, unbelieving, unfaithful and would receive a new identity this morning from the God who gladly gives it, and that they would come to this table and receive forgiveness and walk out a brand new thing, not just a better version of them old self, but a brand new thing that is complete and lacking nothing because of you and everything you've done. Help us to believe, and for those of us who came in here today knowing you and loving you and seeking to honor you with all of our life, may this table remind us that our source of fullness comes from you alone. May we come to this table often and be filled and then dedicate ourselves to pouring ourselves out, just like you showed us by example. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.